Let us pray. Lord, you are holy. You are set apart. Help us to behold your glory, to see your glory through the preaching of the word, that we may see you as glorious, beautiful, worthy, worthy of praise and worship, worthy of investment in our whole life. Lord, I pray do something miraculous today that you would let the word pierce through the hearts of stone, turning to hearts of flesh, that you would remove veils from people's eyes, that they would see you as beautiful, glorious, and a treasure. Empower this word through the Holy Spirit to reach people that we may love and worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. I am Preston Hughes. I am usually in the tech booth in the back leading the live stream, uh, but today I am up here preaching. And I also have the privilege of teaching the college Sunday school class in the mornings. Um, So if you are out here and you're a college student and you haven't been coming to the Sunday school, I encourage you at 9.15 we meet in the fellowship hall. Come join us. Just finished the book of Colossians. And then we did a little five-week series on gender and what that means for biblical interpretations of gender. So really interesting things. And we'll be doing Advent type of studies for Christmas, and then we'll be doing another series uh, of a book of the Bible. So if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Justin talked about, right, we just finished our last series, our last sermon on Ecclesiastes. And now we are beginning to transition for this Christmas Advent time, some sermon series that in hopes to stir your affections toward Jesus in this series, specifically through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, this series, this sermon specifically is, I think, meant to be a stepping stone towards the incarnation studies, Uh, not necessarily diving in it on this sermon, but what I hope to do is convey the importance of beholding the Incarnation. And that it is just simply enough to study the Incarnation, but we first must see it as glorious, wonderful, and to behold it. So that's what this sermon series is for, or this sermon is. It's, a, I, I think, like a softball pitch up to the next one so that they can hit it out of the park uh, and cover the Incarnation. All right. So, with the groundwork and foundation being laid out for us, let's Turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. We'll be reading through chapter 4, verse 6, but starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it, 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For this, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore... Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What we re- but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. All right, well, if you're like my family, it is officially Christmas season, and we spent all Thursday decorating our house, Um, well, all Friday, I should say. The Christmas time, I want you to think back to when you were a kid, maybe even if you're an adult, you enjoy this, right? The expectation of that first present. Right, the one that you're really, really hoping for, right? It's the, all the eagerness, all the excitement. You're ready. Christmas time comes, that present, and it's time to open it, and you spend it. Man, and you love that present. Like, you cherish it. You enjoy it. It is beautiful to you. You spend the rest of the day playing with that toy or that present, or you go spend it with your family, showing everyone what I got for Christmas today, right? But... Here's the truth, right? Some, some time happens. That true, that toy kind of loses some importance to you. And um, by next Christmas, right, there's a new toy. And that new toy you're excited for. And it comes and you enjoy it. And it's beautiful and glorious to you. And this is better. And now that old toy kind of seems like it's forgotten um, not, not as delivering of the joy as you remembered last year. And this new toy with the new inventions and the new gadgets, right, that it brings a better, more lasting um, enjoyment for you. Now, it's not a perfect analogy in this sense, but here we have an example of a new toy, right, a new thing bringing much more excitement, much more. In the same way, uh, and, and a little different, we have what we could see is covenants, right? We have an old covenant that came with glory and an enjoyment and excitement, but we have a new covenant that's coming, that it's here, and it brings much excitement, much joy, and it's permanent. So, if you're a note-taker, 
Okay, I've, I've kind of broke it down into to three sections. So no, section number one, okay, this is the surpassing glory of the new covenant. So section, this is verse 7 through 11. So behold the glory of the new covenant. All right, let's look. Verse 7 in chapter 3. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. It goes on in verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So now, the Old Covenant is described as, in these passages, a ministry of death and condemnation. And that is the reason because the Old Covenant laid out the law and did not empower Israel and the Israelites to necessarily follow the law. So what it left was knowing how God's standards and holiness and expectations, but yet people were not empowered to fulfill the law. Therefore, they were condemned, they had sin, they had death. This is why the Old Covenant in this passage is what Paul is saying is the ministry of death and condemnation. Now, a wrong way to interpret this would to be to say that, well, Paul is saying that the Old Testament didn't have any glory, that it's like purposeless, right? No, right? We know that it did have purpose. It did have that even Moses was shining his face. So let's look at this direct quote, this direct passage together in Exodus. So turn with me back to Exodus. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. Should be on the screen as well. All right. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this is the glory of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, right? And that when Moses has an interaction with God, his face is shining bright, so much so that the Israelites did not want to see it and that he would veil his face. So again, bad way to interpret this is saying that the old covenant had no purpose, no glory. No, we see that it does have glory. Now, go again that Moses' face, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So what does that mean? So why, why would Moses veil his face? 
You see, this is revealing the truth of the old, te- the old covenant. Only did it not enable the people to follow. Moses was veiling it because after some time, his face would stop shining if he didn't encounter it with God, right? It would diminish. It said to veil his face so the people would not see the, what was being brought to the end, right? That the old covenant was being brought to an end, that it was temporary. So he would veil his face. So that is the reference of which was being brought to an end. Now, verse 8 and verse 9, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see, the new covenant, our new ministry, Jesus Christ does not fade. He does not diminish. His glory is everlasting. It is powerful. Right? And so, if what shined on Moses' face was so strong and so glorious that he had a mere image of God, how much more so does the ministry of redemption and the Spirit have with us that we carry Christ inside of us, that our face shines with Jesus Christ, and that we do not have to veil our face in hopes that people will see a diminishing, fading glory but we have an ever-present reality that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. This is the ministry of the new covenant. Now, I remember thinking back in the day that, well, man, if I could just be like Moses, and if I just spent enough time with God, then maybe my face would glow, and maybe I would just win so many people over to Christ. But the truth is, that was a poor view of the new covenant. I already have that in me, right? Christ is already the power, right? We don't have to hope for this glorious, like, shining light that Moses had on his face because we already have it. That's the truth of the new ministry. And it is that a greater ministry, right? And here's the craziness, right? Crazy. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and encounters God. Encounters God, glows his face, comes down, people want to shy away. We have a new ministry, a new covenant, that we don't just have to watch someone else go up the mountain and encounter God. We have prayer, and we have Jesus Christ, and that you and I, my friends, can walk up that mountain ourselves. We can go in the tabernacle, and we can spend time with God in prayer. And that is a powerful thing. But a lot of us would rather just watch someone else do it. Don't go through this Christmas season watching other people encounter God without taking the time to walk up the mountain and pray with God, encounter Him. You can experience Christ yourself in prayer and behold Him as glorious and His face will shine upon you and you will carry the message out of Jesus Christ. Experience Christ this season. This is a a beautiful truth that Christ has dwells with us. A permanent glory. 1 Peter 1.12 even says that angels long to look at this ministry, that Jesus Christ imputes His righteousness onto Christians and that we have a personal relationship with Him. The Holy of Holies isn't there. We can approach God directly. All right. That was section one. We'll go to section two. 
in three verses, uh, chapter 3, 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have such a hope, what is our hope? The, the new ministry, the new covenant, right? That we can approach God, that we have a personal relationship with God. We do not have a fading covenant, that we have an everlasting Father. Does that produce in us laziness? Shying away? No. It produces boldness. Like Moses, who would veil his face so that the Israelites would not see that the old covenant was fading. Now, my friends, if you're like me, you'll be quick to confess that we are not as bold as we ought to be. That we don't live our lives out for our neighbors, our work, our family, and our friends. We do not live our lives as an outpouring of Jesus. And that we too, like Moses, do not seek to evangelize as we should. And if most of us were honest, we live ashamed of the gospel. Not in Romans 1.16 saying, I am unashamed of the gospel. So here's a litmus test for you. Okay, If Christianity were to become illegal in America today, just all of a sudden, bam, illegal, you can't be a Christian, um, it's illegal, and the law requires that everyone turn Christians into jail. Okay, How fast do you think you'd be turned over to the authorities in your workplace in your job, with your friends and your families? How on fire and passionate are you living your life for Christ that it would take people to know that that person is a Christian and they live their life evidence and I hate it and they should be turned into the authorities? Now, if this is a true test for you and a a challenge, our challenge is to love Jesus Christ and be bold. Be bold for Him. Hopefully, the answer to that question is instantly that you would be turned over, and that you're living your life boldly for the glory of God, embracing His love and kindness. And is this not the end for which we are made? Right? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever? What what is really appealing to a world? It's Christians who are bold, who sell everything they have, to love Jesus Christ, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man in all his joy goes and purchases that field and sells everything he has for it. This is what glory is on display. Not that we just carry faith with us. It's that we passionately live out the life that we are called. That we hedge everything, our welfare, our finances, our friendships, and all of the acceptance of the world at the cross of Jesus, and we view it as worthy to pursue over trivialities of this world. Be bold for God. And even in our boldness, the truth still exists that some people will not see the glory of God and rather choose to embrace their sin. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Even with the glory of Moses, a shining face, and the commandments of Israel, they're still described as a stiff-necked people that did not obey the commands of God. This hardening of hearts phrase mentioned here is a phrase in the Bible that really means someone's inability or lack of desire to obey Christ and His commandments. So some other passages, it's all throughout the Bible, just some quicks. John 12, 40, Mark 6, 52, Exodus 7 through 9, Romans 9. Okay, they all describe, you have unbelief in Israel, Jesus telling people that Isaiah predicted some people would not believe. Pharaoh's heart was hardened in Exodus 7 and 9, Romans 9. So the hardening of hearts inability or lack of desire to see the glory of Christ. A heart of stone. Hardening hearts. Similar. So, this leads us to a theological standpoint. This is often called the theology of illumination or regeneration. So here's how I would define illumination. Okay? Illumination. The works of the Holy Spirit by which He renders the truth of the scriptures more fully understandable and applicable to someone's life. The works of the Holy Spirit by which he renders the truth of the scriptures more fully and understandable and applicable to someone's life. The reason I'm saying more fully is because people can know but not fully know. They can know about Jesus, but not fully know Jesus. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit to make it more fully understandable and applicable. So why do people not follow Jesus? Not choose to love God? Do not see Him as glorious? Their hearts are hardened. Okay, there's two thoughts. Okay, two different types of passages in the Bible. You have passages of what are called moral antipathy. Moral antipathy, just basically meaning, I see God is true, or I see the fact, but I don't accept it because I don't like it. It's morally ill to me. I don't like it. Passages of Scripture that talk of man's rejection of God, but we do not like it, so we do not pursue it. There's other passages that point to a person's spiritual blindness, that I cannot know the truth about God, therefore I can't follow it because I cannot see God as glorious. So we have people seeing it, but I don't like it, or I just can't see it. There's two trains of thoughts. Well, which one is it? Are we unable and hardened hearts to see God in this way? Well, it's really a mixture of both in most cases of theology. So here we go. Our hardened heart, that is our moral antipathy, our dislike of truth is and results in spiritual blindness. Don't you see this in verse 14? My heart, their hearts, their minds were hardened. Right? They don't like it. Therefore, the veil remains unlifted. They don't see it as glorious. We don't like it, and we don't see Christ as glorious. So that is how it results. That moral antipathy leads to spiritual blindness. Hardness, hearts, results in spiritual blindness. The veil remains unlifted. But now, 
all illumination is from God. How will someone choose to love God? How will someone love God in his commandments? Christ removes the veil. Only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is the veil lifted, is the heart unhardened. So in the Bible, when we talk of someone who has a hardened heart, it is mentioning that this person at this time is currently not a believer. Okay, The veil remains lifted, unlifted. People do not see the beauty of the glory of God because of a veil is over them. So here in the Old Testament, right, two examples of Israel showing that they still remain unlifted. They did not see the glory of the Lord as awesome and all-pursuing and passionate. Deuteronomy 29.4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Romans 11.7-8, through 8, What then, Israel, failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Christ is the only one who can take away the veil, lift the eyes of unbelief, make you understand, and make you hear the glory of himself. Now, think of a wedding. Okay, An old tradition, I don't think it happens as much in America, is the bride would wear a veil. Right, And that you walk down, and the groom is eager, ready to see the glory, the beauty, all of the effort that the bride has put in into making herself beautiful to present herself as his wife. And that, that veil, right, the audience and the groom, they can't see the glory yet. And you can see that, man... Veil is lifted, and man, wow, the groom is excited. What a beautiful bride she is. The audience is amazed. Photographers taking all the pictures, right? All the glory and the beauty. And so Revelation is similar to this, that when the veil is removed, now people see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that they see what was once veiled to them. Christ has lifted. Now, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now to me, I don't know about you, this is a point that was contention. Because to me, it seems like in verse 14, it says that Christ takes away the veil But then on verse 16, it says that, well, when I turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. So which one is it to me? So this is often a debate on regeneration and faith. So does does Christ lift the veil before I believe or when I turn to the Lord? Um, No, I think verse 14 is very clear that Christ lifts the veil. And that what this passage is displaying in this, this sentence, this verse is that it is a very quick, simultaneous thing that often it usually comes that someone, the veil is lifted by Christ and then they are able to see glorious and turn to the Lord. That it happens 
so fast, it is hard for our human eyes to see it, that Christ removes the veil, we turn to the Lord, and that is how the, re- the regeneration and revelation of Jesus Christ happens. Now, before, let's go back to our bride analogy, right? Before the veil is lifted, is it not true that the bride was still glorious and beautiful, that she was just kind of dull and bland? No. It was already glorious and beautiful, right? It's just the veil has been revealed to see now the truth that lied behind the veil. It's not that the veil lifting makes the thing glorious, right? And that Jesus Christ is glorious. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious, worthy of worship. And that when the veil is removed, people see the already ever-present truth. And this is what Revelation is like. When someone believes in Jesus Christ, they come to know and see that Jesus Christ is glorious. All right, verse 17. Now, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. This is a great Trinitarian text for the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, freedom from what? Now, there's a temptation here, my friends, to say in an American exceptionalism that... Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is not what this passage is saying. This is not the definition of freedom. Okay, so we cannot cut this out and stamp it on a flag. Uh, This is not, not it. What it is saying is freedom from what? There's a context to this. Freedom from condemnation and sin. Freedom from the old to the new. Freedom from death. Freedom from the hardened heart. Freedom from a veiled face, free to love, free to worship, free to glorify in Christ. This is the freedom that we experience in this passage, right? That we are free to love Christ, that we're free from death and condemnation. Now, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, unveiled face being those who glorify in Christ, Behold the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, behold. Behold is an elevated word compared to see. Right? The Bible, we believe to be specific in their wordage, right? We're not just seeing God. We're beholding the glory of God. Now, behold is an elevated sight. It is seeing something of remarkable significance. So what do Christians behold? The glory of God. We don't just behold God. We don't just see Him, right? We see the glory of God, that He is good. That he is worthy. That he is beautiful. Amazing. So what does it mean to be a Christian? So we Christians behold the glory of the Lord. We unveiled faces, Christians, behold the glory of the Lord. So a Christian isn't someone who just sees the Lord. A Christian is someone who sees the Lord as glorious, beautiful, amazing, ponders, 
dwells on, meditates, chews on Scripture, observes, sees, and focuses on God's glory. And you see, my friends, God is infinite in his attributes, characters, characteristics. And we dwell on those things. And Christians love to ponder about them. If there's anything of praise, Jesus Christ and God have those attributes to the supreme. They are the best. The Trinity, God, is the best at love. Behold the love of God. Behold His mercy. Behold His grace. Behold His knowledge. Behold His wrath. Behold His compassion. Behold His patience. Behold His holiness. His consistency. His faithfulness. His goodness. This is the power of the new covenant, right? And that like Moses, who spent time with God, now receives in part a glorified face. This is the truth that we see here. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Christians, this is a crazy principle that we become what we behold. Moses beheld God in Mount Sinai and Tabernacle and shares now in the glory of his holy face, sharing a light from his face. We become what we behold. And that if you, my friends, you, Christian, in this season, want love, you want the fruit of the Spirit, right? You need to behold Christ, who executes all of these things to the infinite. We are transformed into Christ when we view and behold Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit, right? We see in John 15, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you want fruit of your ministry, if you want more patience, more love, if you want to see God as glorious, just behold God. Behold Jesus Christ, what he has done. He is glorious and worthy. Did you catch the song, we sang, we, the song that we sang earlier? Turn your eyes on Jesus. That is to behold Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This again is not of your own doing. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, beholding and transforming, becoming what you behold is an act of God. It's a miraculous thing. Moving on to section 3. Okay, This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The light of Christ. The light of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, again, what ministry? The new covenant. By the mercy of God, again, pointing back, it's all from God, it's a gift, that it's all God. This ministry that we've been given, we do not lose heart. We can endure a season of fear, 
We can endure challenges. We can endure troubles, sorrow, and hard seasons. Specifically, Paul does not lose heart in the church of Corinth despite difficult circumstances. So, verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word by the open statement of truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You need some context here for verse 2. So Paul is writing his second letter to the Corinthians. Debatably, his third, his second might have got lost. Um, But this, in the Bible, is called 2 Corinthians. So now Paul has a ministry set up in the church of Corinth. And a tradition of old was, if you were to approach a new town, and you knew someone from that town, uh, they would write a letter of commendation, recommendation, saying, hey, I affirm that this person is valid. Or as in the South, we might say bona fide. Um, that they are true. So, Paul, what has happened to the church of Corinth, he sets up the church, goes away. The church is influenced by Eastern preachers who are very good orators. Very good at speaking, very good at public debate. And that they have influenced the church and tickled their ears. To now, Paul gets light of this and wants to return. And the church ask in 2 Corinthians for letters of commendation. Uh, And Paul basically explains that I need no letter because my evidence of faith is the existing church in Corinth. That I need no commendation, and even if I did, I refuse to tamper with God's word and speak elegantly and try to tickle your ears Right, And we do this similarly in, in the Southern Baptist Church. Let's say if you were to move to another church, right, you go ask for a letter of recommendation so that when you approach another church, they, someone speaks on your behalf. So he's saying, I do not need this, that I refuse to tamper God's word. I refuse to lie, that I commend myself in the sight of God, that I am Paul And I have a valid ministry, unlike the people around us. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul is delivering the gospel again to Corinthians, but as mentioned, the veil remains to some that they will not come to understand the glory of God. So a bad way to interpret this again would be that, well, since veils and God is the only one who removes veils, what's the point of missions? What's the point of going and evangelizing? Well, here it says... That's a bad way to think about it. Even Paul admits that Christ is the only one who removes veils, but here himself is evangelizing to a church. Here himself is preaching the gospel. So, we must go and share, and maybe the means of your evangelism to your neighbors will be the thing that removes the veil to the light of their eyes. Verse 4. In their case, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, the God of this world, Satan. Here we have another important aspect. We are just not unable to see the glory of God from our spiritual condition and hardened heart, but there is an enemy, and he exists, and he hates God, and he hates when you love and glorify God. He wants you to do the opposite of what you were intended to do, to glorify God. He wants you 
to be pulled away, to hate God like he does. And he keeps us from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of, God, of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, here's the truth about Satan. He's a better theologian than all of us. He knows more about God and Jesus than we do. But what's the difference? He doesn't view him as glorious. He doesn't view him as worthy of worship and treasure. He wants you to not view him as glorious worship and treasure. You can know or see Jesus historically. You can see in what some cases Jesus said. You can, there was people who saw miracles and still not view him as glorious. Still not see him as glorious. Now, I used to go to Miami on spring break missions and share the gospel on the campus of the University of Miami and Miami-Dade. Um, and I had, not me, my friends, okay? It was like afternoon in Miami in, in April. And they found a guy on the lawn and they came up to him and said, hey, let's have a spiritual conversation. And they had this guy in the lawn, in Miami heat, no shade for three hours. Because this guy just had all the questions for them. And they were avid studiers of apologetics. And they actually answered it well and faithfully. Uh, And the guy at the end of the day said, Man, I've never heard the gospel like this. I've never heard it. You've answered all my questions. I don't have anything else. He stood up and said, I thank you gentlemen for your time. But it's not for me. I just can't get behind it. Appreciate y'all. And walked away. You see, here's the truth. We can know everything about it. We can have all our things, but we cannot see Christ's glorious and beauty because it is God who enacts people and removes the veil to see him. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with our, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul again critiques other ministries, other ministers who proclaim their own skills and their intellect and their sermons and tells the Corinthians that, Paul is not claiming himself, but Jesus Christ. This is missions. Christians, we do not evangelize to our friends, community, and the world by winning people over to themselves, to our skillful preaching, to our clever words. You see this today as well, that some churches aim to come up with clever sermon series, tweetable sermon points, high music video quality, and many more things. The problem with this is what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. Now Paul and us, we preach Christ and we preach Christ crucified in a servant heart with reverence to the infallible and inerrant word of God, seeking to put spiritual and physical needs of others above our own when evangelizing. Why? Why do we claim Christ and not ourselves? Don't you see in the message, it's all God. God removes veils. God does this. God gives us everything. And what are we to claim ourselves in any type of evangelism? Verse 6. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a direct quote from Genesis 1-4. Genesis 1, 4, if you think about it, right, we have the creation story. That God said, let light shine out of darkness, and boom, there was light. And it was good. This is our spiritual insight before 
Christ removes our veil. That you were in a dark void nothing. That you did not see Christ as a beautiful light to behold his glory. But God said, let this person see. Let there be light in this life. And he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of what? The glory of God. And where is the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent above all creation, glory, adoration, and praiseworthiness. See back to the light. You see that the light shined on the face of Moses, and it was a fading temporary light. Now you see the light of the glory of Christ shining in the face of Jesus, who Hebrews points out is the greater than in all things. The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Behold the face of Jesus Christ to become like Christ. It is Christian doctrine. This is passion. This is excitement. This is beauty, wonder, awe, glory. Jesus Christ. Christians, you should be excited about God. He should stir your emotions up talking about him. We know what people love by what they talk about. Are you eager to look upon Jesus, spend time with him, talk about him? So here are some points of application as we close. For some of you, this time of much anticipation, this Christmas time, is of much anticipation and eagerness. For others, a time of trepidation and reluctance. Here's some application from this text. Number one, behold God. Don't go this Christmas season without taking deliberate time to behold God. There are so many attributes of God, especially in Christmas, to dwell and meditate on. Behold the virgin birth. Behold Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Behold Christ incarnate, word became flesh. Behold God's faithfulness, that he has delivered the Messiah to a stiff-necked people who long expected him, fulfilling every messianic prophecy there was. Behold him as wonderful. Behold him as a counselor. Behold him as mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Behold him as the light of the world who in Revelation is described will replace the sun and the moon because the glory of God will give it light. When you look at Christmas lights this season, I want you to consider the everlasting and much more powerful light of Christ that illuminates everything and drives away darkness and has spoken into you that you should see the spiritual light of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. If you truly want to enjoy this season to the utmost, behold God. Number two, behold the gospel. Number two is behold the gospel. You can never outgrow the gospel. See the wonderful ministry that is true for you. Take time this season to dwell on the gospel that comes out of the birth of Christ. Good news that there was once a veil over you and that the mercy of God was lifted so that now you behold God in the face of Jesus Christ as glorious, as a treasure to pursue with all your energy, effort, and love. If this isn't the case for you, and maybe today, a veil seems to be uplifted. Let us know. If you want to behold God as glorious or you're starting to see that, let us know. Last point, number three, be bold for God. We are carriers of this great light since the Spirit is in us. We will not be like Moses and veil our light. This reminds me of the, the old children's song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All around the neighborhood, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Shine your light. 
There are numerous people in your school, job, neighborhood, work, foreign countries that still have veils over their faces and do not behold Christ as glorious, but see him as hatred, boring, bland, or unknown. You do not remove the veil, but can be the means to do so. In this season, share Christ, share him crucified, live your life in a manner, and the light of the glory of God is on full display. Let us pray. God, thank you for removing veils. Thank you for being praiseworthy, glorious, full of adoration. Lord, we pray that you would remove veils, that we would dwell, ponder, and enjoy the season that you have given us, that you are worthy of all praise, adoration, and that we would be bold for you, that we would behold you, and that we would remind ourselves of the gospel. Lord, be with us all. 